0: Would you remain standing and turn in your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. For those who are visiting with us or haven't been with us in a few weeks, we're working our way through Genesis, and this is where we are today. I don't want any of our visitors to think that this was the text that I picked for the ordination of deacons. Um, In the same way that... The text last week on the creation of woman was providential to Mother's Day. This text fell today, and so we get to deal with it. Hopefully it fits together and ties in well. Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Fathers, we come to your word today. May we know with confidence what your word is and what it means for our lives. We trust that it will not return void. We trust that it is... The, the, the power by which you created the world and spoke everything into existence. And it's by the same power that we have life. Because your word commands us all to put our faith in Jesus Christ. So I pray that your word would do its work today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. This account is a, it's a tragedy. It's a sad story. Uh, Things in the garden were so good to the point that when we refer to the garden of Eden, we say it was paradise or we say if some place is nice that we visit, we say it's like Eden. It was really the perfect place. Adam and Eve had everything not only they ever needed, but everything they could have ever wanted. Additionally, they'd been given power to rule over all creation. And they threw it all away. The fall was the point at which sin entered the world and as a result death came on the scene. Up to this point there was no fear, no shame, no suffering, no sickness, no death. All was as it should be. And then like a piece of china hitting a tile floor, everything shattered. The whole world changed. All the relationships Uh, that uh, in terms of their relationship with God vertically, their relationship with each other horizontally, everything was broken. It is a sad story, but thankfully it's not the end of the story. Something greater than the sadness would come about. And this is what J.R. Tolkien captures in The Lord of the Rings when Sam realizes that Gandalf isn't dead, and he asks him, will everything sad become untrue? This is the hope of the redemption. Everything sad that we see in the Garden of Eden is, coming, is becoming untrue. What our Redeemer is doing, has done, is doing, and will do, will make all the sadness that we read about in Genesis 3 untrue. But before we can get to that, we have to understand what happened here. The fall is the account of Adam and Eve sinning or breaking the commandment that God had given them. And I want to remind you of what that commandment was from Genesis 2. Genesis 2 verse 16 says, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. God had given the commandment to Adam because Eve had not yet been made. And so the command given to Adam had to be transmitted to Eve, and we'll find that it was. The, class, the, the, the commandment that he gave Adam, though, was clear. It was both a, an abundant provision, you may surely eat of every tree. We're going to notice how that gets twisted around. As well as the prohibition, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. And, you know, we, we, we notice this with our kids, right? You tell them, you can have anything that you want to eat. I've put everything out on the counter. And well, what do they want? Yeah, what's still in the, the pantry? The Pop-Tart, right? The one thing that you said that they can't have because we're going to have what's out here on the counter. It's almost our human nature to want what we don't uh, or aren't allowed to have. Fundamentally, what is happening in this text, what, what we see happening before us is a distrust, is Satan casting a doubt on the Word of God and thus on God himself and then a willful choice by Adam and Eve to disobey the Word of God. It's the same struggle that you and I face every day against sin. There is some sense of doubt that's cast. We 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 justify ourselves. You know, do do I really have to be nice to this person if they're being a jerk? Do I really have to tell the truth on my taxes when the government is horrid at managing their resources? And you know, you think of all of the corruption that's there. Do I have to be honest on my taxes? Do I really have to forgive that person when they've never even said I'm sorry? You see how this happens in our own lives and how we're led to question, did God really say, is that what he really meant? Does this really apply to my life? And once the doubt is there, then we make the willful choice and we often feel justified in what we're doing. So we all have something to learn from Genesis 3 today, every one of us. This this fits very nicely into our lives. It's quite practical. And so let's begin now in verse 1 where we're first introduced to the serpent. Now Moses says something here very general about the serpent. He says one it was crafty and two that it was made by God. It was the most crafty of all of the animals. Now many of us and I would include myself in this group would like to take this verse and make it mean that all snakes are evil and should be annihilated. I don't like snakes. Um, I don't like the surprise of snakes. And this could be proven if any of our neighbors have video cameras of when I have been surprised by a snake, I have uh, managed to uh, move in ways that would shame the most gifted dancers ever who have lived. (laughs) I have no idea if that is recorded on video, but in this day and age, you have to assume that it is. But the passage that's before us doesn't teach that snakes are evil. In fact, the word that's here, it's translated, if, if all of us looked at what translation we have, we'd find there are quite a number of words. And as I've explained before, any time we see that there's a, a, a number of different English words that are used to translate something from the Hebrew or the Greek, we really need to, to question what is the true meaning, but also recognize that often it's all of these English words that really help us understand what the original author was intending to communicate. In other words, we don't have the perfect English word to match up. So we see words like cunning, deceptive, subtle, or shrewd. And I think that all of these kind of put together help us to understand that indeed the the snake is crafty, it's subtle. Think of it. I mean, the snake is uh, typically silent, except for the rattlesnake. uh, And only then, when it needs to warn you that you've entered into its presence, snakes are typically silent. They are designed to blend in their surroundings. I know in where we're originally from in Georgia, the Copperhead, uh, we've had so many neighbors take pictures of them and you look for minutes trying to find it because it's so well blended, so well camouflaged into its surroundings. They're subtle. They make uh, little or they detect little attention. That's, that's part of the way that they are successful in hunting is they have the element of the surprise and they use it to their advantage. So snakes are subtle, they're crafty, they're able to surprise uh, the ones that they seek to attack. So you see how now why Satan would choose the serpent in which to mask himself to appear. But we know that snakes aren't evil also because the Lord God made them, and everything that he made he called good, didn't he? So unfortunately we can't annihilate all of them. So Satan himself was shrewd and crafty, and he chose then the serpent through which to manifest himself to Eve. Now, the text here only refers to him as the serpent. It doesn't tell us that this is Satan. But we know from other passages of Scripture that this was Satan. Revelation twelve nine 9 and, and 22 both refer to Satan as the ancient serpent. There are other passages in the New Testament that make this connection as well. Satan was a fallen angel. He was created by God, and he chose to rebel against God. And in this account, he is acting on his own, but was, is, and will always be under the sovereign dominion of God. That is both a comfort and stirs up many questions for us, doesn't it? It it prompts us to think, what does this mean? So let, let me point out the positive on this. In this temptation, we see God's grace. Because God did not allow Satan to come as an angel of light or something that would have surprised Adam and Eve. We see grace in how he came as a serpent. Why? Well, Adam had already reviewed all of the animals. Remember that when he named them? He had already assessed them. And remember what his conclusion was, there wasn't a helper suitable for him. There wasn't anyone he could relate to or interact with. There was no animal that had the gift of language. So, warning number one to them should have been the talking snake. Ding, ding, ding. Bells should have been going off. He knew that none of them spoke. But secondly, all of the animals were under his and Eve's authority. So, any animal that showed up on the scene and produce something new or some revelation that they hadn't heard before that was contrary to the word of God, should have been immediately rejected. They should have known better. In many ways, the attempts of Satan to deceive Eve were laughable. And yet, our father and mother fell. They sinned. Why? Because the allure of power, glory, and pleasure. Is that something we can relate to? Absolutely. Almost every sin comes to this and to us in one or more of these categories, the allure of power, glory, and pleasure, and we've all fallen victim to temptations in this way, one way or another. We have all taken advantages of opportunities for ourselves to gain power or to gain pleasure or to, to gain glory, and we, too, have sinned. Another interesting thing about this, this passage is that we see that Adam was present. The whole discourse is between the serpent and Eve, and yet toward the end we see that Adam was present. So this reveals to us another tactic that Satan uses. He conquers and divides. Eve was not created when the command was given. And so Eve, in doubting God's word, was also doubting what her husband had transmitted to her, that they were not to eat of the tree. And as we'll see, there is some changing of what God actually said. And so it's important for us to remember this too in our own relationships, that Satan loves to accuse, he loves to lie, he loves to conquer, and he loves to divide. He is the ultimate vandal. Like a lion, he is roaming, seeking whom he can devour. In verses 2 to 4, at the end of verse 1, rather, before we go into 2 to 4, we see that he says this question. Did God actually say? This is really the question of every temptation that faces us. Did God really say? Or did God really mean by what he said this? It's the question before all of us. And so we see in this text the importance of the authority of God's word and the centrality of God's word in our lives. And then he adds to that question, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. Now, that's not what God said, was it? He didn't say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden. In fact, he said the opposite. He said you may eat of every tree of the garden except for the one tree. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Interesting, right? What Satan does here. First, he questions the authority of God, and then he twists the words. He changes the words. He perverts the words of what God said. Know your enemy, know his tactics. Conquer, divide, question, authority, twist, pervert. This is what he does, it's how Satan works. Jesus said of Satan in John 8, 44, When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now look in verse 2 where Eve responds. She says, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Eve corrects the serpent in one respect, but then she too changes and adds to the word of God. The correction is in the freedom, that they are indeed free to eat of all of the trees. But then she says that they're not even allowed to touch it. She adds a law. She adds a rule. And isn't this what we do as well? Pick on our kids again. You say to your kids, don't eat the cake on the counter. It's for a party later tonight. And then you hear them tell their siblings, you better not touch that cake. Her mom said she'd kill you. All right? If you remember back, we did this too as we were kids. You know, our boss comes to us and says something like, you know, we've got to get these numbers up or we're going to have to make some tough choices. And we go home to our spouse and say, if I don't get my numbers up, I'm going to be fired. Right? We always go to that extreme. We pervert, we twist, we make things worse sometimes than they need to be. The Jews did the same thing with the Sabbath. We looked at that recently and how God commanded them to keep the Sabbath day holy, but then they had through the years have added more and more and more rules till it was almost impossible, you know, you have light switch protection panels that you can buy, you know, to to not have to touch because that would break the Sabbath. There's a little Pharisee in every one of us. It's what we do. And I have realized, and I'm realizing more and more, that whether we swing to one side of the pendulum or, or, or the other, what we really want in our theology is for it to work. We just want it to work. If we swing to this side that we're more legalistic, we want it to work. We want it to produce results. We want our kids to be, you know, well taken care of. We want our finances to work. We want our, uh, our jobs to work. We want everything just to work. And if we swing to the other side, that's our expectation. And what happens is our expectations are blown out of the water. We, we are faced with surprise after surprise after surprise. Because God doesn't give us a system, He gives us His Son. He doesn't want us to love a system, He wants us to love His Son. He doesn't want us to hold on to a system, He wants us to hold on to the person of His Son, Jesus. And so remember that when those legalistic tendencies tend to pull your heart in a direction one way or the other, where you tend to do what Eve did in this case, and what we've all done, and recognize that our hearts belong to Christ Now, Satan has, in a sense, softened things up. He's questioned the authority of God. He has twisted the words a little bit. And now in verse 4, he goes in full assault. He says, you will not surely die. He completely contradicts what God has said. He gives his own type of revelation, in a sense, in saying, you will not surely die. And he's implying to them that God lied to them. Here's this animal, this created being, who Adam and Eve were given to rule over telling them that the Creator was wrong. They should have known better. And over and over again, the evil one whispers the same lie in our own lives. This won't hurt you. No one has to know about it. It's so old-fashioned, no one believes that anymore. My God would never judge someone if they think it's right. You hear people saying these things and you feel the allure of your heart to want to express the same kind of ideas. The lie is literally as old as Adam. And then in verses 5 and 6, he entices Eve with the power and glory. For God knows, he says, that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He casts God as the cunning one. He casts him as being full of jealousy and animosity toward his creation. When it was Satan who was the one who was cunning, who was jealous of the power that God had, which is why he fell in the first place, and had animosity toward creation, but this is what Satan does. He flips things around. He perverts things. He suggests that God has been hiding something good from Adam and Eve all along, and he goes further to suggest that they could even be like God if they would just eat the forbidden fruit. Does this remind you of another temptation in scripture? Another story that we read about? Right? In Matthew 4 we read about the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness. At the beginning of his ministry, he went into the wilderness, and during this exchange, Satan employs the same tactics. The fruit of the tree appeared good for food. Satan ordered Jesus, who had been without food for 40 days, to turn the stones into bread. Right? The lust of the flesh. The fruit of the tree was a delight to the eyes. Satan offered Jesus the riches of the world. We see the lust of the eyes. And the fruit of the tree was desirable to make one wise. Satan suggested that Jesus should call down the angels to save him from jumping off the cliff. We see the lust of the pride of life. It's the same way that he worked in the garden, the same way that he attempted to to tempt Jesus, and it's the same way that he attempts to tempt us today. And with Eve. Each temptation, Eve gave in. But in Jesus, we say, we see him stand on God's word in the face of each temptation, and he resisted this. In verse 6, we read that she not only took of it and ate, but she gave it to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. And while this line doesn't necessarily say that Adam was with her the whole time. I think it's the normal reading of the text. There's certainly nothing in the text that separates these two scenes, although some believe that it was possibly two different accounts. I think the normal reading of the text was Adam was there, and he was just passive, just silent. He was quiet. Even if he had not heard the words of Satan to Eve, what should Adam have done when he saw her take the bite? Stop! Don't do it! You know, what about when, he, when she offered him the fruit? No, but he just, he gave in. He was passive and he sinned. Satan had reasoned away the command that God gave Adam and Eve and they crossed the line and they sinned. One commentator writes that this was remarkable when we consider that they stood in a more direct relation to God, their creator, than any other man has ever done. That their hearts were pure, their discernment clear, their intercourse with God direct that they were surrounded by gifts just bestowed by him and could not excuse themselves on the ground of any misunderstanding of the divine prohibition which threatened them with the loss of life in the event of disobedience. In other words, if anybody should have been able to stand, it should have been them. But now sin has entered this perfect creation and brought with it the promised judgment. And verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked. So in one degree, the serpent was right. Their eyes were opened, but it wasn't what they expected to see. Now they saw their nakedness. Their innocence was gone. The perfect world, their very lives that they had known, was shattered. The outcome of their sin was that for now, for the first time, they knew shame. Up to this point, there had been no shame, no guilt, and now they knew it. And look what it does. It causes them to want to hide their nakedness before one another, and, and they also want to run and hide from God. It breaks both relationships. They, they, their world literally was shattered. If the story ended here, it would just be a sad story. It would be a horrid ending. But consider what happened. In the same way that they listened to the tempter and fell into sin by not obeying the word of God, there would be one who would come, who would perfectly obey all the commandments. Jesus, who not only resisted the temptation of the evil one in the wilderness and stood up to him with the word of God, also took the judgment of this sin and our sin to the cross and nailed it there. The power of God's word to defeat sin that was dismissed by Adam and Eve, but was expressed in perfect obedience by the work of Christ Jesus not only withstood the temptation, he overcame it through his death and resurrection. Romans 5 says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sin. That's the bad news. But then go down to verse 15 in Romans 5, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more... through the one man, Jesus Christ. The free gift of God's grace to us in the sacrifice of Jesus has overcome sin once and for all. And for us, it is only to receive this free gift by faith, putting our trust in Christ alone. We can be thankful to God that that stain of sin is gone. The the mark of shame has been removed. The guilt has been taken care of. Our only hope, is Jesus. May we rest in Him alone.